I need you to forgive me right this moment for anything I might do to you in the remainder of this episode. Well, but you were forgiven, like, how long have you been a Christian? Oh, well, then I've, I've got free reign. Okay. I've got carte blanche. Okay, let's I can deepen. say anything I want from here. Welcome to another lit episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swam along with my colleague Ken Hensley. And if you don't know about our work at the Coming Home Network, come visit us at chnetwork.org. Uh, we are a group of people from every background you can imagine who came into the Catholic Church for a number of different reasons, but we all ended up in the same place. Ken, a former Baptist pastor, me, a former evangelical rock and roll kind of guy. Yeah. Ken, I'm excited to talk more and more. As we continue to just you know drive this whole question of sola fide into the ground, yeah, yeah, beat it like a like that horse in Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment, just beat it till it's gone. No, we're not really though. We've been talking about faith and obedience a lot, and we're actually shifting gears. We're talking about justification now. That is the meaning of the conception. What is the meaning of justification as we tell our story? And again, this is all about trying to help. People understand what was going through our own minds on this question. It's not to, you know, try and belabor any point other than just to try and give a decent explanation as to why it is that we ended up Catholic, having clearly read everything that Luther had to say about justification. Yeah, I feel like it's showing respect to our viewers to treat these issues in enough detail and at a, at a enough with enough enough depth that uh, that it doesn't seem like we're just skimming over them. You know, because I used to be a Protestant pastor. Um, you were a pastor, but you were deep in the Protestant world in your own, you know, your own version. And and we're wanting to explain the reasons that we had for doing something so unthinkable, and that is uh, becoming Catholic. And so, and so we are treating this in some detail. All right. So I guess we got to start with John MacArthur, not the one whose park is frightening in the dark, uh, right? But this is John MacArthur, yeah. the famous Calvinist pastor who I think is in your neck of the woods. Yeah, the right? Reformed pastor, John MacArthur. Yeah, his church is probably about 45 minutes from me. We begin with a quotation that, that sets this up. The difference between Rome and the Reformers is not theological hair splitting. A right understanding of justification by faith is the very foundation of the gospel, he says. You cannot go wrong at this point without corrupting every other doctrine. And that is why every different gospel, and that would include the gospel of Catholic Church, is under the eternal curse of God. Okay, starting the story. When I came to Christ, now this is way back when I was 22 years old, I was converted into a non-denominational Protestant and very much Calvinist environment. With respect to the doctrine of justification, then, what I was taught from the very beginning was that justification is about the imputation, keyword, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the one who has faith. It was repeated again and again. It's a forensic term. We're talking about a legal term. We're talking about courtroom kind of um, analogies and, 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 um, and images. It's the imputation or the legal crediting of Christ's righteousness. Justification, in other words, is not about God making us righteous internally. 
that would fall under the doctrine of sanctification, as I was taught. Justification is about God declaring us righteous because an alien righteousness, that's the term that was used, a righteousness extra nos is the Latin meaning from without, a righteousness that comes to us from without. In fact, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself has been credited to our account by faith alone. And make sure that's and a, a lot of Christians who don't hold to Reformed theology understand most of the pieces of what you just said, that uh, Jesus paid mm-hmm. a debt we could not owe, we owed a debt we could not pay, and because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, you and I can come before the throne of God. But to put it in the specific legal language yeah. that you put it in is very much a characteristic of Reformed theology. Yes, yes. Well, um, it is the theology of Luther as it was developed by Melanchthon and came down through Calvin and all that. But... But the fine points are lost in a lot of uh, evangelical thinking, you know, um, along the way, and some some other Protestant denominational thinking. But that's what justification is taken to mean, okay? Now, over time, I graduated from seminary, and I became a pastor. And week after week, I began preaching expository sermons through various books of the New Testament. And as I did that, and as I was in, in, in touch closely with the text of the various epistles and the Gospels, I increasingly wrestled with the suspicion that there was just something not quite right about this conception of justification as something that takes place, as something that is completed and is done with at the moment one believes. And the reason was, it it, it seemed that this view of justification created a number of tensions with other passages and themes that I could see clearly taught in the New Testament. Um, And we're going to run through a few. For instance, I ran into passages scattered throughout the Gospels and the Epistles that seemed to present obedience to God as though it were a condition for salvation. Now, we've gone into this in detail, and I'm not going to belabor it. In fact, we've looked at a number of passages over the last few weeks. But there's one passage that we haven't mentioned that I want to mention, James 2, 24. This happens to be, and this is one of those that people on the road to Rome almost chuckle when they first realize this, but this this happens to be the only place in the entire New Testament, Matt, where the words faith and alone actually occur together. And it turns out to be in a sentence that reads, you see that a man is justified by works or good deeds and not by faith alone. And this occurs in a passage that begins back in verse 14 with James saying, what does it profit, my brethren? If a man says he has faith, but has not works, can his faith save him? The, it's the same place that he says faith without works is dead. Yeah, the, right? the context mean, is about salvation. strong language. It, the context is about salvation. And in that context, he says, you see that a man is justified by his works or his good deeds, not by faith alone. And yet, no, my, my perspective and the perspective of those who taught me, no, this can't be what James means. It cannot be. Why? Well, because we already know that at the moment of faith, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, and that from that instant we are justified. Past tense. Therefore, James must be using the word justification in this context in a different sense. And he's simply saying that by our good deeds, our faith is shown to be real. That is, we are vindicated in the sight of men. We are, quote-unquote, justified in the sight of men. And he's not talking about salvation. And again, to just back things up and we'll hint at where you're going with this. The reason that you knew that James couldn't be possibly saying what it looked like James was saying was because you had this 
theological framework of justification, yeah. and this does not fit it. No, it didn't fit it. So it contradicted. You had it. to say that this means something besides what it appears to to be saying. Yeah, and you know, and there's some details in the text that allow you to come up with another interpretation, which I won't go into. But but yeah, you had to come up with another interpretation. Though he couldn't mean by justification there what Paul means when he says we're justified by faith apart from works of the law. It had to mean something else. Well, but there were more tensions. For instance, I ran into passages all over the New Testament that certainly appeared to present perseverance in faith and obedience, but perseverance in faith as a condition for salvation. Passages as straightforward as Hebrews 3.14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Passages as clear, you would think, as Colossians 1.22 and 23, where Paul says, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before God, provided that you continue in the faith. And I would read these passages. They, they seem to be saying that you have to persevere in the faith, but no, again, they, they, they couldn't be saying this. They, they can't be describing perseverance as though it were actually a condition for the inheritance of eternal life. Again, because as we know, the moment we believe we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, we're declared to be just. From that moment on, God sees nothing in you and me but the perfect righteousness of Christ. And therefore, he can't be saying that. So what's he saying? You end up interpreting these passages to mean something along the lines of, well, actually, Paul's just describing the sorts of people um, who have been justified by faith alone. They're the kind of people who do persevere to the end. And I've gotten into those circular arguments about whether or not when Paul talks about people persevering to the end, or when the letter to the Hebrews talks about people persevering to the end, uh, that that's not prescriptive language, it's descriptive language. That's not saying yeah, yeah, that's that you you should, it's just saying that you will have yeah, it, it sure sounds like he's saying you should, you know, you know, if you persevere to the end, but you turn that around to mean. No, yeah, but I can't be saying that, Ken. I can't be saying that, Ken, because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit everything it, else that I'm trying to argue. It doesn't fit Romans. the grid. Okay, there was another set of passages that created the same sort of tension between the grid, that is the, the definition that I held of justification, and other things said in the New Testament. And that was this. There are passages in the New Testament that describe the confession of sins and receiving of forgiveness in a way that makes it sound as though this is going to be an ongoing part, an ongoing aspect of the Christian life. Right? I'm thinking of the Lord's Prayer here, where Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Pray this way, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, forgive us, present tense, as we forgive, present tense. I mean, it sounds like Jesus is describing something that Christians will be praying in their lives on an ongoing basis, as, it, as we do now. You know, every morning at morning mass, we stand and we pray the Lord's Prayer, and it includes, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, except included in the Reformed conception of justification as legal imputation in that forensic sense. Included in that was this idea that at the moment we believe, all of our sins, past, present, and future, we often like to say, were forgiven. 
they're gone. And from that moment, all that God sees when he looks at you, when he looks at me, is the immaculate righteousness of Jesus Christ in which we have been clothed. In fact, again, it makes it really hard to figure out what to do with that passage, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Well, but that stuff has already been forgiven. Why am I saying this again? Yeah. It, it, On top of that, what in the world are you supposed to do with Matthew 6.15 where Jesus says straight out, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Sounds pretty conditional to me. Yeah, and that the one you're bringing up, I mean, even get, get, gets us deeper into the tension. Also, the other parable Jesus told about the servant that came and said, Master, please forgive me, and he forgave him. And then he goes out and he refuses to forgive someone who owed him a lesser amount. A much amount. smaller debt, yes. Instead, he grabs him and begins to throttle him by the throat. And he goes back to the master, and the master says, basically, because you didn't forgive, I'm rescinding the forgiveness. <laughs> you know, I'm taking it back. And then he says, thus will your father do to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. So yeah. The verse you just mentioned and the one that I'm mentioning here just just takes the tension that I'm describing and ratchets it up. But you're right. It was hard to explain those things. And in fact, I had a Christian friend, a Protestant friend, who I remember her saying one time to me that it seemed to her that the idea of Christians confessing their sins in church, you know, um, making a general confession of sins, such as we do in the Mass again, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned. She said that it seemed to her that a Christian continuing to confess sins in this way, after having been justified, amounted to slapping God in the face. That's what she said. She said it's like you're slapping God in the face because you're implying that he hasn't already forgiven those sins. You'd be implying it every time you prayed the Lord's Prayer, too. Yes, you'd be implying that again. Right? Yes. You know, in fact, I, I remember distinctly how Protestant pastors, Protestant preacher, um, preachers, often become kind of all convoluted and strangely explanatory when they come to this subject. And, and you would hear them saying things like, well, strictly speaking, as Christians, we don't need to receive, for, we don't need to confess sins to receive forgiveness from God, because after all, all of our sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven the instant we first believed. You know, meaning for me, it'd be like 40 years ago now. All my sins were forgiven back then, and so when I sin now, it's not like I need to go to Christ and confess it and receive forgiveness. But then they would say, still, you know, it's not a bad practice when you, you know, to pause and to recognize before God your failings and maybe to express gratitude for the fact that he forgave you for that sin 40-some-odd years ago. Ken, you and I grew up as very different kind of Protestants. <laughs> really? Because in the holiness <laughs> movement, man, I'm telling you what, Sunday nights would be like testimony time, and uh, you would hear you would hear the laundry lists come out, you know? And, uh, of course, we came from a tradition where, you know, we took backsliding very seriously. Mm -hmm. And in your particular tradition, the idea of backsliding wouldn't make sense, right? Um, the idea that you could no, if you backslid, you know, it, fall away and then you need to come back. And, and that, well, that's, that's, that's the air I breathe as a Protestant kid in the holiness movement. If you um, backslid, if you fell away, what it created maybe was a feeling of maybe I never had true faith. Yeah. Because if I had true faith and I've been justified, then I will persevere to the end. Remember the descriptive verses? The, well, that's not a head game at all. Oh, okay, well, here's another verse, though, on this issue of confession that really struck me. That is 1 John 
chapter 1, verse 9, and, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, where, where John says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then he moves right into chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And as you read this, notice the sense of urgency. First of all, my dear children, he's saying, my desire for you, and he's speaking to Christians, my desire for you is that you not sin. But then there's this sense of gratitude. But if you do sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. The idea seems to be that because of Christ, we can confess our sins and we will forgive forgiveness. I mean, we will receive forgiveness and Christ will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John seems to view the mercy of God in Christ as something that Christians are going to want to seek out throughout the course of their lives as a kind of fountain of grace to which you and I will want to return again and again to receive forgiveness, to receive cleansing along the way. And yet, again, my view of justification taught me that forgiveness was accomplished at the beginning, and it was done. Kind of hamstringing, you know, this passage, or making it refer, you know, only to the beginning. So, well, Ken, you've given me, you've inspired me here, uh, because now I feel like, uh, it, you know, see if I can play into that tendency you had to believe that the forgiveness happened at one point mm -hmm. and covered all future transgressions. I need you to forgive me right this moment for anything I might do to you in the remainder of this episode. Well, but you were forgiven, like, how long have you been a Christian? Oh, well, then I've, I've got free reign. Okay. I've got carte blanche. Okay, let's I can deepen. say anything I want from here. Okay. So what I'm doing is I'm giving illustrations of the tension I felt because of the definition that I held to be true of justification. And then when I saw these other passages and themes in the New Testament, you know, working to, to, to make them fit. And it makes me think of the the, the character Procrustes from Greek mythology. Do you remember that guy? Oh, I remember that guy. He's the original Bone Saw. Did you ever see the first Spider-Man with uh, Tobey Maguire, where Macho Man Randy Savage played this like underground wrestling figure named Bone Saw, and he'd come out, and they'd, they'd all do the Bone Saw motion for Bone Saw coming out. You know, I know I've seen that, but I don't, I don't remember that that that, well, that situation. Procrustes is the original Bone Saw. We'll see now. When I think of Procrustes, I think of him as the original, um, you know, remember the, um, in Psycho, the Bates Motel? Oh, of course. You know, I, th course. I think of him as the original He's the original proprietor. Norman Bates. <laughs> He's the original Norman Bates, you know, because Procrustes had this little inn along the way in, in Greece, in, in the Greek mythology. He has this inn along the way, and when he'd stand out by the road, and when passers-by would, would come on, he would welcome them into the inn. He'd say, come on in, you know, let me make you a nice meal, and you can stay, stay here for the night. You're thinking Norman Bates, right? Get ready, okay? And he would tell them at some point, too, um, I've got this bed that you're really going to want to check out, you know, his Procrustes uh, iron bed. He said, it's a very special bed because it fits everyone who lays on it. Okay. Now, what he didn't explain to them, what he, what he didn't tell them, didn't tell them until he had them in the bedroom, was how this bed ends up fitting everyone who lays on it. Because once he had them in there, and he would strap them down on the bed, then if the person was too short to fit the entire bed, he would stretch them on a rack until they were long enough. And if they were too long, he would, well, guess, bone saw. 
Yeah, bonesaw. He would, Macho man stuff. <laughs> he would amputate as much as he needed to of their feet and legs to make them fit, okay? Well, at least he's cutting from the bottom and not the top. Yeah, thank, thank the Lord for that. So anyway, Procrustes and the, the, the Procrustean bed becomes an analogy for something that is like a fixed structure um, to which everything is forced to fit. And, and over time, I, I have to say that it began to seem to me that the Reformed conception of justification, defined strictly as legal imputation, functioned within my Reformed theology a bit like the bed of Procrustes. Because it was the, the one thing that was never questioned. Um, this view of justification was the fixed center around which everything else was made to fit. In fact, so long as imputation wasn't questioned or touched, as long as it was preserved, it didn't seem to matter how many other biblical passages or themes had to be tortured, you know, had to be twisted out of shape in order to make them fit, like some of the passages that we've been looking at regarding obedience as a condition, the perseverance to the end, ongoing confession of faith, I mean, confession of sins and receiving of forgiveness and whatnot. So this is where the story kind of moves forward another step, because about this time, I learned that an old friend of mine, um, someone that I'd met back in my days in seminary, had left the Presbyterian ministry to become Catholic. I called him um, to straighten him out, and he and I began to talk. Not straighten him out like Procrustes would straighten somebody out. <laughs> well, just to be clear, I, I, I might have gone. No, I might have gone that far at the time. I was beginning to say, but no, not to straighten him out in that way. But I called him to straighten him out, and we began to talk. And the more he and I talked, the more I began to perceive that the struggles that I had been experiencing, trying to reconcile the Reformation understanding of justification, with so much else of what I saw in Scripture that these struggles were struggles that the Catholic view of justification might just answer. And so at some point, I decided to take a fresh run at the entire issue of justification and the meaning of justification. Um, I drove down to my old haunt, Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, which, by the way, sits about four blocks from where the uh, Rose Parade uh, takes place every January 1st. I went into the bookstore. I, I still remember this. It's it's like a scene from a movie in my life. I went into the bookstore and I began scouring the shelves for works on justification, you know, scholarly works. My eyes fell on a two-volume work by Oxford professor and scholar Alistair McGrath. Um, this work was titled Eustitia Dei, A History of the Christian Doctrine of Justification. Now, One of the better-known books on the topic. Yeah, and McGrath so. is a well-known, well-respected, Protestant theologian. And so I thought, you know, this is exactly where I want to start. I want to read his work detailing the history within the church of the of the doctrine of justification. In fact, the book was being described as the most comprehensive treatment of the history of the Christian doctrine of justification that had been written yet. And so this seemed like a perfect place to start. So I sat down in the coffee shop at Fuller, Matt, and I opened volume one and I began to read. And I'll move through this rather quickly, but it's very interesting. McGrath begins, of course, with the patristic era. That is the period of the early church fathers. And the main point that he makes in this section is this. He points out that in these early centuries, these earliest centuries of Christian history, 
there really is no development of what you would call a doctrine of justification. It, it just doesn't really exist yet. The fathers, he said, I mean, of course, they talk about salvation all the time, and they use the word justification. But when they do, what you find them doing primarily is simply repeating passages from the New Testament um, or paraphrasing words and phrases, passages from the New Testament, without giving them a detailed interpretation. Okay. Do you realize how funny that sounds when you say that now? You know, the, the early church, you know, didn't really have a doctrine of justification. They just taught, taught what the Bible says about what you must do to be saved. Yeah, they just sort of read you know, I mean, about, yeah, just the words. It and seems phrases. so like they, they hadn't really like yeah. developed the doctrine of justification. They hadn't discovered this this way that all Christians were supposed to be living, and they wouldn't for a few hundred years. You know, I know, which gets back to the whole thing of tradition and the church and the that we've discussed before. But I'm shame on these sola scriptura church fathers. I, I'll close the know. door on that one, though. Okay. He goes on to say that the first definitive formulation of what you would call a theology of justification comes with Augustine in the early 5th century. And when it comes from the beginning in Augustine, it is the Catholic view, in essence. Now, once again, Luther, Calvin, Protestant sense have insisted that the righteousness you and I must possess in order to enter heaven is a righteousness that God credits to our account. Okay, think the courtroom, think legal transfer, Th think crediting, think, think forensic, yeah. okay? In fact, Luther used the famous image that we're all familiar with of snow covering a dunghill in order to illustrate this idea, uh, to, to make clear this idea that in justification, God does not make us righteous. God is not actually doing anything in us He's not changing us at all. Luther separated completely justification from sanctification. That's the important thing that we need to grasp. In justification, God covers us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ like snow floating down to cover a dunghill. Okay? In sanctification, which begins with our regeneration by God, the new birth, the gift of the Holy Spirit, God begins the work of remolding us into his image, changing us internally remolding us back into the image in which we were created. But they're totally separate. Justification is the legal. Sanctification is the, um, is the imparting of righteousness, if you will, okay? Now, in Augustine, McGrath points out, justification is not the crediting of righteousness to the sinner. He uses the word justification to cover the entire process by which a sinner is actually made righteous and fit for heaven. And again, this would be more familiar to the way that I understood salvation, uh, because we didn't use the word justification left and right the way that mm -hmm. our Reformed neighbors did. In the Wesleyan Arminian tradition, we would talk more about salvation and sanctification than we would about justification. So you guys were just more Catholic, you know, you were somewhere between... Without realizing it, you know... Yeah, you were I mean, more Catholic in this... Our Procrustean bed was shaped slightly differently. You know, we had a different kind of grid that we had to fit everything onto. Yeah, but, it, um, it was like that bed yeah. that Van Gogh paints in this picture with it's kind of all strange and crooked. Okay. We, yeah, Van Gogh, he's not cutting off feet. He's cutting off ears to fit into the... It's more yeah. like the, the pillow of Procrustes, except it's the pillow of Van Gogh. This is getting complicated once again. All Don't right. overthink it. But in Augustine, justification is not about crediting anything. It's about the entire process by which we are made righteous and fit for heaven. It includes forgiveness of sins as well as the renewal of the image of Christ in us. And now I want to read from McGrath. This is how he describes Augustine's. Man's righteousness 
effected in justification, is regarded by Augustine as inherent rather than imputed. Justification includes both the beginnings of man's righteousness before God and its subsequent perfection, the event and the process. A real change in man's being, not merely his status, is envisioned in his view of justification. So that man becomes righteous and a son of God and is not merely treated as if he were righteous and a son of God. Now remember, McGrath is a Protestant and he's a brilliant theologian. He understands well the Reformed understanding of justification and he describes it well here. The Reformed understanding, it's about a change in status. When I'm justified, my status is changed. I am not changed. It's about God treating me from that moment on as though I were righteous, not actually making me righteous. Okay? And, he, and, and, and we would have taken it again in my in my where we didn't separate justification and sanctification mm-hmm. in the same way that you would have. We would have said, well, was it Second Corinthians five seventeen? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Yeah. Whereas you would have said, well, if anyone is in Christ, he's at least out of the frying pan, but he's no, I would not yet been formed in the name in, in the into the image of Christ yet. Well, or I would have said, well, that passage is is about sanctification, not justification. Yeah, it's not about justification. Okay, but now McGrath. I read on in McGrath. He's he's gone the patristic era. He's dealt with Augustine. In the next section of his work, McGrath describes the development of doctrine during the medieval period. Okay, so we're talking now about the 5th century Augustine all the way through to the 15th, to um, the time of Luther, really, up through the early 16th century, all right? Long time. And what McGrath says is that during this long millennium, the 500s through the 1500s, essentially, what we see in the history of Christian theology regarding justification is really nothing more than, hear this, an elaboration of Augustine's framework. He's basically saying from Augustine, he's basically saying before Augustine, we have no developed doctrine in the church. From Augustine all the way to Luther, we have an elaboration of Augustine's framework. This is what he says. Justification during those long centuries is universally understood to involve a real change in its object, the renovation as well as the forgiveness of the sinner. So you're saying that McGrath, this scholar who believes that justification is the key to unlocking the whole Christian salvation yeah. question, is looking through 1,500 years of history and saying, oh, there's not really much about this, <laughs> you know? Or, 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 or he's going to, in the end, he's going to say they're wrong, that there's no doctrine yeah. up to Augustine, and then there's, then there's a wrong, totally wrong theology of, of justification from, from Augustine to Luther. In 1,500, yeah. yeah. And so what struck me at this point, Matt, was that was to realize that, Luther, that that McGrath had taken me all the way down to the time of Luther now, in the, in the early 16th century, and the simple fact that the Christian understanding of justification was at that time, and had always been, the Catholic view. It, this is not something that, you know, as you and I had been led to believe, you know, the, the Middle Ages start, and then Catholics come up with this errant view that Luther has to correct in regard to justification. Yeah. It, it, this it, is the long 1,500-year-old teaching on justification that Luther is coming up against. Yeah, the first 400 years, or the first 300 and, and, and some odd years, 
you have the early fathers just sort of quoting passages from the New Testament, but not stepping back and saying, well, let me organize this into Here's a, the mechanics. Yeah, yeah. In, into a theology of justification. And then from Augustine all the way to Luther, you have uh, the Catholic view. Okay, finally he comes to Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, and the Reformation doctrine. And I read the, the following paragraph, which I have to read out loud. And I'm telling you, I mean, I don't remember exactly, but I, I believe that I, I just jumped up out of my chair as though someone had set it on fire. Okay, <laughs> it, it, it was so striking. This is what he says. Despite the astonishing theological diversity of the late medieval period. So he's saying that on a lot of issues, there was all kinds of diversity of thought. A consensus relating to the nature of justification was maintained throughout. It continued to be understood as the process by which a man is made righteous. The essential feature of the Reformation doctrine of justification is that a deliberate and systematic distinction is made between justification and regeneration or sanctification, where none had been acknowledged before in the history of Christian doctrine. A fundamental discontinuity was introduced into the Western theological tradition where none had ever existed or ever been contemplated before. The Reformation understanding of the nature of justification as imputation must therefore be regarded as a genuine theological novum. So what you're saying then is what Luther is bringing is not the church back to its roots. He's introduced, introducing something completely new, and the primary living his, historian on the doctrine of justification even thinks so. Yeah. Like, this is new stuff. Yeah, and this is so striking that it forced you to pick up the pages and, and show them, you know? I'm showing you. It's real. It's, it's right here on my notes. <laughs> you know, yes. And of course, as a, re, as a Reformation theologian, I guess the way that I would have put it is, well, the New Testament teaches Luther's view of justification. In the early centuries of the church, no one developed that, and they just sort of paraphrased words and phrases from the New Testament. And then Augustine developed a view that is wrong, and that view continued on for a thousand years being elaborated, and all the way up till the time of Luther, even though there was theological diversity of all kinds re respecting all sorts of issues within the church in the late medieval period, on this one issue, how does he say it? He says a consensus relating to the nature of justification was maintained throughout. So everyone was wrong from Augustine, including on, all the people that, the, yeah, including all the people that the apostles taught for never getting the the wind of this in the first place. Yeah, I mean, you know, just to make this as concrete and clear as possible, what McGrath is saying to us, what he was saying to me, is that before Luther, justification was understood to refer to the entire process by which you and I are made righteous, including the forgiveness of sins including regeneration, sanctification, a renewal in the image of Christ. And then he's saying that with Luther, a sharp distinction was introduced between justification and sanctification. Justification now taken as referring to the legal imputation or crediting of righteousness, sanctification taken to refer to our renewal. And what he's saying is that this idea had never been contemplated. That's his phrase. He, he not only says that it had never been held, he says it had never been contemplated. In other words, there's no one in the history of Christian theology that he can find who's sitting around going, hmm, maybe justification deals with the legal, you know what I mean? 
it had never been maybe we should take maybe we should take these two things that the church thinks of as a whole yeah. and think of them as two distinct things yeah, yeah, yeah maybe we need another. to separate them he, he he's saying this had never been contemplated before in the entire history of christian thought and he, which is also by the way as the last several episodes indicate the same thing that he did with faith and works is separate them apart from one another right take two yeah, things that yeah. the church has always said kind of went together and say yeah. no these are two different things yes He's saying flat out that the way in which Luther came to understand, and, and Melanchthon, Calvin, in the Reformed tradition, because there was some development there. He's saying that the way that they came to understand justification had never been understood in that way. It was brand new. He calls it a theological novum, a new idea. Now, this struck me, okay? I mean, think of it like this, Matt. After all, I mean, Luther was the one who said that his doctrine of justification was the doctrine upon which the church, quote unquote, stands or falls. Luther said, I do not admit that my doctrine can be judged by anyone, even the angels. He who does not receive my doctrine cannot be saved. Calvin described this doctrine of justification as, quote, the hinge upon which the door of all true religion swings. And then 500 years later, we have John MacArthur saying the difference between Rome and the Reformers is not theological hair-splitting. A right understanding of justification by faith is the very foundation of the gospel. You cannot go wrong here without corrupting every other doctrine. That, and, th and this is why every other version of justification, every other gospel, has to be completely condemned and rejected. And that's why MacArthur has a, has a conference every year in his church um, to prove how corrupt Catholicism is. You know, so that basically, this is what was striking me, for nearly 500 years, serious Orthodox Protestant theologians have insisted that a correct understanding of justification as legal imputation, completely separated from sanctification, is so crucial. It's the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. It's so crucial that it's really doubtful that anyone could be a Christian who doesn't believe it. And that doesn't just apply to Catholics. That applies to my poor Wesleyan, Arminian, oh, yeah. Methodist friends. It definitely does. So Remember from a former episode, remember John Gerstner thinking that Scott Hahn has definitely yeah. has, had proved himself. Was never to, saved to begin with. He's never been saved at all because, because he couldn't conceive of someone understanding justification in the correct way and then changing his mind and becoming Catholic. The correct way, according to Gerstner. Yeah. So what was hitting me was, for 500 years now, this has been expressed. You have to believe it this way, or you probably cannot possibly be a true Christian. And then now McGrath is telling me that this view was unknown in the first 1,500 years of Christian history, that it had never been dreamed up, had never been contemplated. And what this study of history did for me was it it brought this question to my mind. And in a way, we're back to sola scriptura and the perspicacity of scripture. Um, because if no one before Luther had thought of justification in these terms, what exactly are the biblical evidences for it? You know, um, you, know you would think that if this was something that was taught clearly in the pages of scripture, or even clearly enough, or even Somewhat clearly, surely someone, somewhere, would have thought of it. 
Instead, we're stuck with murky passages like forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Yeah. (laughs) Right? I mean, instead we're stuck with, you know, but if you do not forgive, then your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Yeah. Instead we're stuck with like some pretty clear stuff from Jesus, which he obviously doesn't mean if Luther's view of justification is true. And Christ is going to present you before the Father holy and blameless if you continue in the faith. Yeah. We're stuck with all these verses. It's just a figure of speech. What he really means is Luther's plan of justification. But think about it. Sola Scriptura, one of the aspects of that is this perspicacity of Scripture, this idea that that we cannot bind, we should not bind any Christian conscience to believe anything that we cannot show to be clearly taught in the pages of the Scripture. And so the question is raised, how could this be clearly taught in the pages of Scripture if no one in 1,500 years even contemplates it? And that's not me talking. That's not a Catholic talking. That's Alistair McGrath, professor of theology at Oxford, well-respected worldwide. Essentially wrote the textbook on the history of yeah. justification. So so in other words, what I want to do at this point, we move the story forward. After reading McGrath, I'm thinking, okay, I want to re-examine the biblical material on this issue. I, I have to re-examine it from the ground floor. I have to do it again, fresh. I mean, if you want to imagine me as a theological detective, I'm going down into the basement, I'm going down into the evidence room. I need to grab those boxes off the shelf, you know, just mark justification, dump all the evidence out onto my desk, and just start from scratch, looking again. And it wasn't as though I, that I wasn't familiar, of course, with the primary biblical passages that would be given in support for the, for the Reformed view. But after the struggles that I had had, trying to put these puzzle pieces together, you know, the Lord's Prayer, you know, passages on perseverance. On a, after all the struggles I'd had, and then now learning that this doctrine of justification that I held was brand new with Luther, I really had the desire to, in a fresh way, look at the evidence, that is, the biblical evidence. Because maybe the problem, I was beginning to think, maybe the problem wasn't with these troublesome passages the Lord's Prayer, these troublesome passages about obedience being a condition or perseverance. Maybe the problem was with the structure that I was trying to fit them into. It was with your Procrustean bed. Yeah. So right. It was the problem. The problem was not that the people were too tall or too short. The problem was that your bed was the thing that you were using to measure everybody against. That is a you know, so that's a very good way of saying it. And and I have to admit, it wasn't until this point that I ever even asked the question. Maybe it's not these problematic passages that I'm having to work with, these problematic puzzle pieces that you, sh- you push around, they don't seem to fit anywhere. Maybe it's the framework that I was trying to work, work them into. Maybe it was the framework work that needed to be discarded rather than these puzzle pieces, discarded by reinterpreting them in a strange way. Maybe it was, it was the iron bed. Ken. Maybe it was the iron bed that needed to be thrown out um, to be picked up by the... Um, Trash man. The recycling men. The recycling men. In, in, <laughs> in, in my part of the company. Trash man's. Uh, my part of the trash company. Trash man's so, too, pre- yeah. too pejorative. Let's say the recycling man. The recycling man. The recycling man. It is iron, you know, the bed. So, Ken, we've gotten into why you had, you know, doubts about what had been imputed to you as the doctrine mm-hmm. of justification mm-hmm. in your Reformed tradition. So we've got a lot more to go into this in terms of what you found when you got into the scriptures and read them with a fresh set of eyes. But in the meantime, we're out of time this time around. Yes. So that means that if you have questions about what you heard, or if you think we didn't go far enough, then you'll have to listen to the next one. So subscribe 
And you can catch all the episodes of On the Journey. Go back and watch some of the ones that you may have missed and share them with your friends. And uh, we would love to hear from you at the Coming Home Network. So visit us at chnetwork.org. Ken, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again next time. Good to talk to you again, Matt. We'll see you next week. Have a good weekend.